The scripture reading is from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. It can be found on page 1014 in the Black Bibles. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning to you. Um, my name's Brad. I'm the pastor of families here at Christ the King, and we're taking a little break from Daniel. Don't worry. For those of you who are like, oh, we didn't finish. Yes, we will. Um, Clay is out today, so I'm, I'm preaching today, and then next week we have our Senior Sunday, so if you've never seen that, we'll be celebrating our high school students who are graduating, and then the next week we'll be right back into Daniel, so stay tuned. But for the next two weeks, we're going to be in the New Testament, and um, specifically today, I'm going to be talking about kind of like now what you know last week was Easter we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus and how do we then live like what is it Easter's this big thing we celebrate we had beautiful flowers up front some of them are still here they're, they're doing great as you can see uh, we had exuberant music and um, you know we celebrated together lots of people were here we had three services and uh, we come from that into this week and it's you know if you look at the title of the sermon it's like, now what? Like, how do we live in light of the resurrection? And so at Easter, we celebrate the fact that Christ has defeated death and sin. And that's a big deal. Um, you know, sin, we read in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, is any want of conformity or transgression of the law of God. In other words, sin is anything that's in opposition to God's ways. And the reason that that's bad is because anything that's in opposition to God's ways always and every time leads to tough stuff, difficult stuff, ultimately death. And so Jesus comes and defeats death. He defeats sin and brings renewal. You know, it's kind of like liquid nitrogen. If you, if you have kids, this is kind of fun. It's a good way to get, you know, gum out of carpet or Play-Doh out of carpet. You can go to Amazon or whatever. You can order this stuff. And you spray it on the gum or you spray it on the Play-Doh and it, what does it do? It completely freezes it and then like if you squish it, it just shatters, like it falls apart. That's what sin does. Even if you don't think it does, like it does, it destroys. Um, this week I spoke at a funeral on Thursday of a woman who grew up in Corpus Christi and I, I met her later in life, but there were pictures of her as a young woman, as a child, and then as a bellhop for some restaurant where she was on roller skates, you know, and then... Um, it had pictures of her as a young mom. She was a workout trainer. And I met her when she was 70 and um, got to know her pretty well. And then she died at 82 from Parkinson's and other things. And at that funeral, as I'm sitting there talking about celebrating Abigail's life, um, the reality for everyone in the room is this. Our days are numbered. Like whether you like it or not, sin has 
infected, it has distorted, it has contorted, it has, it has taken God's good creation and it's brought this concept of death into it and we all have to face it. And Jesus comes and he turns it upside down with the resurrection, which is why we celebrate Easter every year as we do. It is that day where Jesus says perfectly, it is finished. Death has been unseated. Sin will reign no longer. My kingdom has come. Jesus says in John chapter 17, 20, he's asked about the kingdom that he's bringing in. It says, once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will, will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. So what Jesus is doing, he's doing something that is meant to so transform the people that he's died for that they begin to become kingdom bearers themselves. They begin to bring the realities of what he's doing into their own lives in such a powerful way that they get to be part of the story in bringing his kingdom in that place. Now, when you hear the word kingdom, there's probably lots of things that come to mind. You know, maybe it's Magic Kingdom and you think of Cinderella's Palace, you know, that really, really huge palace in the center of uh, Disney. It's based on like a 14th century Czech kind of palace or whatever and there's actually some rooms in there you can stay in but it, you have to know people who know people who know people to, to be able to do that it sounds horrible to me I don't ever want to stay there but for a lot of people that's a really cool picture of a kingdom and you learn about kind of the kingdom that is Disney through watching looking at the palace or think about yourself like your own kingdom your house if we were to come over if all of us right now were to come over to your house to learn something about you we would learn something about you if we walked into your house right now some of you would be fine with that others of you would not be fine with that just kind of depending on your nature or whatever but you learn about the ruler through the way in which they rule and the kingdom that they care for what is Jesus's kingdom like what is he like what does it mean to see his kingdom come to bear in our midst as Jesus says that it is? And so that's what we're going to talk about today. If you look at verse 3 there, uh, Jesus, or, uh, Peter says, you know, I, my goal is that grace and peace would be multiplied to you. Other versions say that you would have grace and peace in abundance. That's really the primary message. If you're like, okay, I'm going to tune out for most of what Brad's about to say, come back for one second. Here's what I want you to take away. God intends for you to think about the kingdom that you are in, that you're a part of, of what it means to live in light of the resurrection by understanding that his desire is to multiply grace and peace to you. That's what he wants to do. Whatever kind of thoughts you have about what God's interested in, whatever other people have told you what God's interested in, the scriptures say God's desire is to multiply grace and peace to you. That's the message. And so we're gonna think about that a little bit together. So first, that God's kingdom is a kingdom of a kingdom of grace, that he intends to multiply grace to you. Verse one, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is really important. What the Bible is not is just a gathering of philosophies from the ancient Near East that a lot of people respect and so we're just gonna follow it together. That is not what it is. Peter is bringing a message from the incarnate word. He's bringing a message from the one who was born into our world, lived among us, and then rose from the dead. He brings a message from him to the church, and he brings it to us today. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. It's interesting, actually, as Christians, Peter brings this message to us, and then we bring it to 
to more. I mean, you and I heard the gospel from someone who heard the gospel all the way back to the apostles. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, Peter comes to deliver the message of God to us so that his grace and his peace might be multiplied to us. Now, if you had to think about what the primary message of God's kingdom is, would the idea of grace be part of that? Uh, Nietzsche said this, one should not go into churches if one wishes to breathe pure air. Ooh, that stings. Bertrand Russell said this, I say quite deliberately that the Christian religion as organized in its churches has been and still is the principal enemy of moral progress in the world. Look, we're sinners. The church has made mistakes, that's true. But if you want to know what the church is meant to be about, what it's supposed to be about, here are the words from one sent by Jesus. And we're meant to be a people who multiply grace and peace. That, that's what we're supposed to do. To so understand who he is and what God has done for us in his, in his son that we become grace multipliers everywhere that we are. Peter doesn't come to shove his own agenda down our throat. Please hear me this morning. I am not here to convince you through lots of preparation in my sermon. I, I really did prepare and work hard on this. But my goal is not that you'll like me. I know some of you actually don't. But you know the, the reality is my goal is for you to understand the depths of God's affection for you that he wants to multiply grace toward you this morning. That's what he wants for you. Is that what we're known for as a community? Do you know that's actually really what your leaders and your elders and the people who lead this church want our church to be a, a place of grace? where we're known as a people who are seeking to express grace towards others. You know, it's a real pleasure. My role at the church is to work with lots of different staff members. I love our staff members. They're so gracious to me, and I try to be gracious to them. And it's all driven by the fact that God has been gracious to us. Peter would have us know that what he has to bring to the church is from Christ, and it's a message of grace. Peter goes on. To those who are elect, exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God, which is this idea that God has loved you before your first red blood cell made its way through your body, before you breathed, before the hands of time ever ticked, he had you in his mind, a creative expression of who he is to bring it to bear in this world, and he loved you, and he knew you. In the sanctification of the spirit, Peter writes. So that what that means is, is that God is actively working on you. If you will put your trust in Jesus, even if you don't feel it right now, okay? Even if you're struggling to see how it really works itself out. If you will trust Jesus' words, what Christ does through the power of his spirit is he begins to reform you and shape you. I've been following Jesus for most of all of my life. God has shaped me. God will shape you. He promises to do that. As you put your hope in him and you cling to his grace, Peter writes, God will sanctify you in the spirit. And what and sanctify you to what? For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Jesus has been gracious to us so that we might actually begin to believe that following him is a good thing. That we might believe that his ways lead to life. And as you grow in Christ and as you put your trust in Jesus more and more and more as the Spirit works in you, you begin to believe that message. And maybe you're saying, well, I don't know if, you know, I, I believe that message. Okay, well, why didn't you love well this week? Why weren't you gracious this week? Why did you take that chance to put a jab into somebody and, and embarrass them or whatever? Like, we all struggle with sin. We're all in this process and on this journey toward where Jesus is taking us, a people saturated in his grace, 
as he multiplies his grace toward us. So here's what God's up to in his kingdom. God's kingdom is a, is a kingdom of grace where he knew your face before you knew it yourself. God's kingdom of grace is a kingdom where he will transform your heart. God will transform you as you put your trust in him. The journey is you trusting that, having faith that he'll work in you and you will see him do that. God's kingdom of grace is a kingdom where he will call you to follow him, to obey him, not to earn his favor. We don't believe that. We don't believe that if you obey enough, God will love you more. That, that, is, that, is, that is false. God loved you before you could make a mistake. He certainly loves you now. God calls us into a relationship with himself because he is gracious. And if that's true, and the scriptures say that it is, and if it's real and the resurrection of Christ proves that it is real, it transforms us. Don't you want to be part of that kingdom of grace? Here's the good news. You are. You can be. You know, our church is meant to be a place where we see the kingdom of God come into our hearts and express itself out all around us. This is a place of grace. That's his kingdom agenda. Now, why does Jesus do this? Why does Jesus so end the grace? Well, the shorter answer is because grace is what brings life to God's people. Listen to John chapter one. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Jesus comes from the Father to bring you grace and truth. Revelation chapter one, grace and peace to you from him who is and was and who is to come. And then the last chapter of the Bible, the last verse of the Bible says this, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people, amen. Are you getting the message? God wants you to know that he longs to multiply grace toward you because when he multiplies grace toward you, you will begin to experience resurrection. You'll begin to experience renewal. You'll begin to experience what Peter talks about as being born again. You'll see the world as God created it, not as sin has destroyed it. You'll begin to long for relationships to be renewed and reconciled versus utterly destroying the objects of your pain. God brings grace into our lives and our ability to be gracious is completely dependent on our having experienced it. It, does, it cannot work the other way. It won't work the other way. To be gracious is to treat someone as a beloved friend, to love them completely, to embrace them fully. How many people have you loved like that this week? It's hard for us to love like that. Why haven't you? Probably because that person said something or did something to hurt you, or that person said nothing or did anything you care about. They're inconsequential to you. But what if... God's love for us becomes so powerful, we begin to tap into his grace so deeply, we begin to see our place in this world as grace bearers and kingdom bearers, looking for places to apply God's grace so that those places can begin to experience resurrection. Do you see how that works? Grace-enabled love from God calls us to love people, even those who have hurt us or those who might be inconsequential because Jesus loves them all. Or consider this, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 34. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Do you see the pattern there, the paradigm? God asks Israel 
to love foreigners because he loved them when they didn't have a place. God will never ask you to love like he hasn't loved someone already. He'll never ask you to forgive someone that he hasn't forgiven way more. And he'll never expect you to be more gracious to someone than he's been to you. Do you, you see how this works? It's grace, grace, and more grace. God's kingdom of grace makes a people of grace so they can be kingdom bearers of grace. Now, I don't know if you remember this story on 9-11, um, but I was thinking about it the other day. I was reading something, and it, and it reminded me of this story about a man named Thomas. And uh, he was a former Marine we re, we, that uh, was in Manhattan when the uh, towers were, were hit. And when Thomas realized what happened, the article says, he changed into his Marine Corps uniform out of his trunk. Being a former sergeant, he had certain skills that he knew would be helpful and immediately head for de- headed for downtown. When being interviewed later, someone needed help, Thomas said. It didn't matter who. I didn't have a plan, but I have all this training as a Marine, and all I could think was my city was in need. Thomas would return to Ground Zero for the next two weeks to help rebuild his city. That's a remarkable story of being gracious. But he was able to be gracious. Why? He was trained. He had the skills. He had the abilities. He saw the need, and he knew how to apply toward that that need, move toward that need. If you're wondering about what it means for us to bring about what Jesus talks about, of bringing his kingdom to bear, to, bring, to see his kingdom in our midst, it starts with this. Do you know how much you've been loved? Do you know how gracious God has been to you? If you begin to rest in that grace, you will begin to see people who need someone to be gracious to them. I was sitting here this morning and I looked up at my glasses and they had a little smudge on them and, and, and someone reached out and said, hey, do you need this cloth like maybe to clean your glasses? Like, that's so small. But it's so significant. Looking for ways to be gracious to one another. When we do that, we begin to embody the kingdom of God in our midst. And it brings resurrection. Are you seeking to bring resurrection? You know, you think about your husband. Or think about your wife. Or you think about your kids. What does it mean to learn, to seek, to be gracious to them? You know, wherever you are, you know, in your neighborhood, with your friends... If you really understand how much God has been gracious to you, you will begin to want to express it because you want to see more of his kingdom wherever you are. And in doing that, you bring Jesus' kingdom into existence. And so first, God's kingdom is a kingdom of grace. Secondly, it's a kingdom of peace. Now let me just kind of mention a few things here. Um, God has made peace possible for you through his son's blood. As Peter says, you have been sprinkled with the gracious blood of Christ. Now, The imagery here that Peter's referring to is this concept of the mercy seat. And there would have been blood sprinkled on the mercy seat as a sacrifice for forgiveness, as a way to bring reconciliation. And so what Peter is saying here is that we have been reconciled to God. There's a kingdom of peace here. God has made peace with us. He's brought us close to himself. Now, if you think about your relationships and you think about a relationship where there's not peace, that like dissonance there between wanting peace and not having it or maybe wishing you wanted peace but just being bitter about it and they're just being distance and, and frustration and anger, that can feel unassailable. It can feel completely unattainable that it could ever be anything other than, than the reality of what that relationship is. God brings resurrection. He brings peace even into those spots and those places Because he's reconciled us to himself. While we were yet his enemies, Christ 
died for us. Do you see? You know, I remember when I was younger, I grew up windsurfing. I grew up in Dallas. There's lots of lakes in Dallas. And I grew up, I was on this lake and um, I was in high school and I was sailing out there all day and I had a couple buddies and then it was like me and then these old people. And in my mind, you know, those people, like really they were probably like 40, but they were the old people, you know. I'm like 18, 17, I'm out there windsurfing and there's the old guys, you know, and they've got these big hats on. And one of these guys comes up to me and says, hey man, how was, your, how was it out there? I was like, it's great, it's blowing 40, there's big ramps, got a small sail, so it's awesome, it's really, it's been a great day today. He goes, no, nah, just wait till you get older. And then he walked off. And I was like, what's that supposed to mean? Like, what am I supposed to do with that? And as I've, I remember like him walking off and me thinking to myself, gross, like, that's yuck. Like, what is that? Like, misery that exuded from this guy toward me. Because it's awesome out here. It's been a great day. I've kind of come to the conclusion after thinking about this for a long time <laughs> that after a lifetime of striving and maybe a lot of difficulties in this man's life and a lot of pursuits and maybe some dreams realized and others not realized, that he had come to the conclusion that it's just not worth it. That misery is really, that's, that's what you're working toward. You know, you having a great day? Yes, we'll just wait till you get older. You know, it's sad and really like harsh and, you know, God forbid that that's real. And he has. And it's not. It was Clay or John. Somebody recently mentioned this quote from Macbeth from Shakespeare. He says, life's a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Ugh. Mark Twain said this. We owe a deep debt of gratitude to Adam, the first great benefactor of the human race. He brought death into the world. Like, that's just disillusionment. And the reason why that feels so sour is we're not created for that. We're actually not meant for that. God has meant us for something so much greater. He's meant us for peace. You know why people are really grumpy? I think this is why. They really don't believe peace is possible. They don't believe it's possible in their own soul. They don't know how to reconcile to the world in which they live. They don't know how to reconcile with other people. And they've, they just become, they've, they've begun to believe that the narrative of their misery is all that there is. That is a lie. God brings peace. God brings reconciliation. God brings renewal. But the reality is, if you don't tap into this kingdom grace and you don't tap into this kingdom peace, you will find yourself in a space of disillusionment. The scriptures say, this is uh, verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Now that's worth living for. Do you hear all those wonderful things? God's way leads us toward mercy. God's ways lead us to be born again. This is not some kind of like spiritual mumbo jumbo. What Peter's talking about is actually when you begin to experience God's grace and he renews you, you see the world differently. Enemies become objects of love. Death is defeated and no longer the last word. Our own sin and misery and embarrassment and guilt are pinned to the cross and we are renewed and reconciled and our sins are separated from us as far as the east is from the west. 
God's way leads to an endless hope, a perfect hope, protected for us in the heavenly realms, guarded by his angels, our inheritance, versus the futility that you hear from the great thinkers of our time. God offers us so much more. God offers us peace. And all of this is made possible not by our own strength, not by our own abilities or knowledge. Rather, as Peter writes, it's made possible this way. Through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. That's why Easter is such a big deal. Living in light of the resurrection means beginning to believe that God, if you if you're really want to mature as a Christian, you ready? Here's the keys. It's not 10 new rules. You're not good at the first 10 of them, okay? You don't need more rules. What you need to do is begin to embody the reality of God's gracious kingdom and his kingdom of peace. As Jesus says to love God and love others as the greatest commandment, if we will seek to be gracious to each other rather than attack one another or find every fault or every weakness or every you know, criticism you can muster up, look, I'm a sinner. If you hang out with me long enough, you'll find enough reasons to not like me. I'll give them to you. I won't mean to. I'm, a, I'm like you. It's not impressive to be able to attack somebody. What's impressive is to be able to be gracious to them and have peace with them enabled through the resurrection. That's impressive. And that's what leads to life and to beauty and to restoration and renewal. Reconciliation is not easy. I was looking, I looked this up, um, looking at some of the most miserable feuds in history, most miserable arguments in history. Um, you ever heard of the Blues versus the Greens? No, this is not St. Louis who's currently losing to the Dallas Stars. That's not, I'm from Dallas, remember. Um, anyway, the Blues versus the Greens. In the Byzantine Empire in the 6th century, um, they had different colors on their chariots. Do you know how the, the conflict ended? The Blues killed all the Greens. That, that's the resolution. Or how about the Grams and the Tewksbury's in the 1880s in the Wild West? They fought over land, they fought over livestock, they fought over all, uh, about a bunch of stuff. You know how it ended? They all died, except one Tewksbury. Is, any, is this exciting to anybody? Like, if you, wanna, if, you, if you get angry and you want peace, or you're, you're, you're thinking about how does reconciliation work, if you seek out your heart's desire to exact vengeance, you might get it and destroy the person that you're mad at. That, you may get that. But is that really what God's made us for? It's not. Jesus loves us even when we don't love him. He's merciful to us even when we ignore him. He pursues us even when we're not interested in him. And you know what the result is? Resurrection. Life. Renewal. I uh, had a friend take me to a Rockets game this week. I got to see uh, Utah fall to the Rockets. And now we're playing Golden State this afternoon. Um, and, and that's all very exciting stuff. And, you know, at the end of the Utah game, I don't, or the Rockets game, I don't remember if every, this is true of every single Utah Jazz player. But almost all of them, immediately when the game was over, got up and went to the locker room. And I get it. I mean, they've worked this whole year. They were making a run. Uh, they were playing some good basketball. But in the end, their skills weren't enough to unseat the true champions, the Rockets, who will prove that in this next series. Okay. <laughs> But there was one Utah Jazz player who walked across that I noticed, walked across the court and began greeting the Rockets. He shook some of their hands, he hugged them, he was smiling, um, checking in with them, whatever. It was Kyle Korver. And you probably don't, maybe you don't know his story, but his dad's a pastor. And I just can't help but kind of celebrate that a child of God is out there, re, you know, expressing that here's the truth, okay? 
you're not only as valuable as the sum of your accomplishments. You're not only worth caring about as long as you're on my team. He was expressing love there. He was being gracious there. He was seeking peace there. And they lost, of course. And that was probably hard for him. You know, we can get so distracted by winning or being right or being misunderstood that we're willing to only care about that as the highest good. That's called an idol. It's a lie. You might get it and it will not leave you satisfied. God offers something better. Peace made possible through the resurrection of his son, Jesus. Peace comes through reconciliation. It is difficult. God knows that personally. He sacrificed his son on our behalf so that we can be reconciled to him and then we can be reconciled to each other. God brings peace. And when you begin to believe that and you begin to seek it, when you begin to do what Peter talks about, multiplying, as it says there, multiplying grace and peace to others, just as God has been gracious and peaceful to you, you begin to change the world. You begin to change your marriage. You begin to change your friendships. You begin to change your relationships with your children. You know, I live with, um, you know, my daughter's at A&M, but I still live with two teenage boys in my house. And, you know, sometimes I just can't hack into their brain. I just can't figure it out, you know. They'll get angry or something and go in the room and shut their door. And I'm like, okay, I love you, you know. The reason I don't storm after them and bang on their door is because God has been gracious to me. God has brought peace to me. I can pray for peace in that relationship and I can wait for God to bring it. And I don't have to exert my force and, and submission. God brings peace. God brings reconciliation. You will never be more gracious to someone than you think God's been to you. You'll never seek peace with someone until you understand the kind of peace God has made with you. It works that way. It does not work the other way. You know, part of what we do when we gather like this and worship, there are lots of varying opinions in this church on everything from child rearing to political positions to who's the best preacher. And like everybody's got their own opinion in this church. But we all sit here together today because we're united under who Christ is. It's a kingdom of grace and a kingdom of peace. And we want to see that come into realization because when it does, resurrection happens and dead things come to life. That's what we care about. So here's what I want to encourage you uh, to consider this week as we wrap this up, okay? I want you to consider the areas where you can extend and multiply grace And the areas where you can extend and multiply peace. Where can you do that this week? You know, as a pastor, when I prepare sermons like this, I don't get to preach all the time. Clay does it every week mostly. But like when I get to do it, it's such a privilege because you get to like kind of pour into the scriptures and you can't do that without applying it to yourself. And so like here was one little application that I did this week on Thursday as I was trying to finish my sermon. I just texted my wife and I said, how can I make your day better today? You know, all she did was send back a heart and we actually never talked about it. So I hope it made an impact. (laughs) But it was a small thing of me just trying to figure out how can I be gracious to her? How can I bring peace to her? You know, if you'll do that, God will bring resurrection into your life. God will bring renewal. God God will do something in you. You know, we read in the scriptures many, many stories. We sang about it in some of the songs. If you go back and read um, some of the songs you've been singing. But it's, it's, it's interesting. Like there are people 
throughout the scriptures who are in absolutely miserable circumstances like Daniel, which we've been listening to Clay talk to us about, who are absolutely miserable and yet at peace with God. They're in very difficult circumstances and yet they somehow are gracious. Why is that? Because they're calibrating off the kingdom of God, not their circumstances. If you really want to be confused in this world, calibrate your emotions to everybody else around you or the difficult things going on around you. It will make you neurotic. God calls us to calibrate to his kingdom of grace and his kingdom of peace. And when we trust him enough to begin to do that, we start healing each other and loving each other and expressing mercy toward each other even people who don't deserve it. So I want to encourage you this this week to look for ways to express grace and look for ways to express peace in your world, okay? Wherever that is, think of that person even now maybe and pray for them. God, help me to be gracious. Help me to express peace because I believe your resurrection is true and I believe that following you as we've been reading here in 1 Peter leads to life and my good. I believe that. I'm going to move into it. Consider that. If you can't do that, if you're thinking, that's nice, Brad, cool platitudes on some of that stuff, but the reality is you don't know what I'm dealing with, you don't know how hard this is, you you don't know the kind of things that I'm dealing, like this doesn't apply. Here's my assignment for you then for this week, okay? I just want you to bask in God's grace and to search for his peace for yourself and that's it. Because what happens is, is when God's grace and his peace saturate your soul, you will, be, you will become more gracious and you will become more peaceful. That, I promise, that's how it works. God's spirit works in and through his word. It's living and active and powerful and able to transform us. If you're in a feud right now with your wife or your kids, ask God, help me to be gracious. Help me to remember how gracious you've been to me so I can be gracious. You will not muster the strength to do that on your own it's a holy spirit driven thing and so if you're in a place where you just are it's all you can do just to be civil then my encouragement to you is to go back and read first peter this text we read go back and read the songs we looked at this morning we sang together this morning and and bask in the grace that god has shown you god desires to multiply grace to you that's my prayer for each of us this week That God multiplies his grace to us. He multiplies his peace to us so that we might believe it to the degree of Christ's resurrection for us and express it in the same manner. Let's pray together as we approach the Lord's table. Father, we do give you thanks this morning that you have been gracious to us, that you have brought peace to us, that your kingdom is coming to bear in our lives in this place through the songs we sing, through the scriptures that are read, Lord, that you're at work in and among us. Lord, I would pray for each of us that we would experience your grace and your peace today and that you might enable us through your spirit to express it. In Christ's name we pray, amen.